Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, then go to my page and then share it. Okay, all right, so welcome back after Christmas break. We're deciding to go into the Old Testament and look at the life of King David. So I want to actually invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. Uh, we, we really can't start with David because we have to start with Saul. Because Saul was the first king of Israel and we're going to look at the very end of Saul's reign, if you will. This passage basically teaches the downfall of Saul. And so, before we even dive into 1 Samuel 15, let me read to you Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride. Pride is one of those deep sins that lurks beneath the surface that's very hard for us to detect. We can be fooled by pride. We can be blinded in our pride. And we can be so prideful that we don't even know that we're being prideful. And so if there's one word that could characterize Saul here in 1 Samuel 15, it would be the word pride. And so here's the question for tonight, okay? Very interesting question related to Saul. What does blinding pride look like in the life of, quote-unquote, a religious person? What does blinding pride look like in the life of a religious person? You can be very religious, spiritual on the outside to everybody else and look really good and yet have pride lurking deep in your heart. So the underlying question behind this really is, what kind of heart do you have? Do you have a Godward, soft, repentant humble heart or do you have a self-centered conceited self-preserving type of heart do you have a heart that's hard or a heart that's soft and so as we start this new series on the life of king david we're going to get into the backstory of how david became king but we really need to look at the downfall of saul because here's i'll say this at the end but i'll say it at the beginning Saul was a man that was not after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. So the issue is the heart. The issue is the heart. So what we're going to do tonight is I'm just going to read all of 1 Samuel 15. And then we're going to go back and take it in chunks. We're going to go back and unpack it. But sometimes it's good for us, these Old Testament narratives... 
these Old Testament accounts. It's good just to read it all as one big, big chunk and kind of get the feel of it. Okay, so is everybody there in 1 Samuel 15? All right, let's read it. Now, before we start, let's get our bearings straight. Samuel was the prophet that was the one that was basically the, the spiritual counselor to Saul, the one that God had raised up as the prophet in Israel. And so you've got Samuel and Saul here. So here we go. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that when Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, and infant, ox and sheep, camel, and donkey. Now, we're going to come back to that because that's a, that's a question that we're going to address tonight. As you read this, you're probably thinking, what in the world is Saul supposed to go do here? Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telem, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel, and they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction." Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I perform the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we've devoted for destruction." Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, and you're not the head of the tribes of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil 
sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. It was the last time you read a passage of Scripture like that. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Okay. I know it's a long passage of Scripture, but we had to get the full feel of what's going on here. This passage of Scripture brings up two difficult theological questions, and then it brings up some practical issues related to pride. And so you can never separate theology from real life. When you come across things in the Old Testament, there's a book by a man named Del Ralph Davis. We had to read this in seminary, and it was on how to preach the Old Testament. And he, and he said, sometimes in the Old Testament, you come across what he called nasties. Nasties. A nasty is one of those things that you don't want to deal with because it's difficult, like hacking someone to pieces or, or devoting people to destruction or all these things. And so this passage has a bunch of nasties in it that we're going to have to deal with. And so we need to deal with difficult passages in Scripture. And so um, there are four major questions that we're going to ask tonight. From this passage of Scripture, four major questions. These are questions posed in this chapter about the downfall of King Saul that we need to grapple with this evening. The first two are theological because they come up in the passage. The second two are practical. Okay, so here's the first big question. And it's probably the one that you came across at the very beginning and thought to yourself, now why would God do that? Here's question number one. How can God order the complete destruction of a people and at the same time be just and good? 
Okay, that's the question. Because go back to verse 2. What is the Lord's command to Saul in verse 2? Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is God speaking, to, to Saul. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, and sheep, camel, and donkey. What is God ordering Saul to do? Utterly and totally destroy every single Amalekite. And not just the people, but their sheep and their oxen and their livestock. Now this is striking because this is not Saul going off half-cocked and giving a vendetta against the people he didn't like. This is God himself ordering Saul to go devote the Amalekites to destruction. And so we need to think, some, you may begin to think of this as this is ethnic cleansing. This is not ethnic cleansing. Let me state it a different way. It's not so much as an ethnic cleansing as an ethical cleansing. Now we have to ask the question, who were the Amalekites? And why did God order their destruction? Okay, this is a, this is a difficult topic to think about. Why did God order the entire and utter destruction of the Amalekites? Who were the Amalekites? Well, if you go back to Genesis 36, 12, Amalek was born to a prostitute, and he was Esau's grandson. Now, what do we know about Esau? What do you know about your Old Testament? Jacob and Esau, which is the chosen, which is the one that God chose before they were born? Jacob. Esau was the one that was rejected. Okay, so Amalek's beginnings are spurious. It's from Esau's lineage, and he's born from a prostitute. Now, Amalek's descendants are called the Amalekites. They learned to domesticate the camel. And they were notorious for their surprise attacks in warfare. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy and Exodus, you remember what the Amalekites did. They were the first enemy that the nation of Israel met when they crossed the Red Sea. Okay? And Deuteronomy tells us the way that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites. Deuteronomy 25, 17-18. Remember when Amalek, or the Amalekites, did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Okay, if you go back and you read that account, this was an unprovoked attack on Israel, and the Amalekites were the first Canaanite or pagan nation to attack Israel. And they came up on Israel's rear, and it's, it's, instead of fighting the, 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 the able women, I mean the able men, the, the mighty warriors of Israel, who did the Amalekites attack? The women and the children, the ones that were lagging behind. So instead of going and facing the men, 
they had a surprise attack, and the ones that were lagging behind, you can think of moms with babies. How many of you moms had three or four kids, and you're trying to walk across the desert, and you're trying to get, you know, junior and everybody together? Are you going to be keeping up as well? No, you're going to be behind the pack. So the Amalekites came and attacked them. So number one, they're the first pagan nation to attack Israel out of Egypt, and it was the way that they attacked Israel. Okay, so Exodus chapter 17, 14 through 16 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, this is after the Amalekites attacked them that way, The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, and saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generations to generations. So back in Exodus, right after Amalek attacked Israel, what did God say he was going to do? I'm going to blot him out. Now, was that immediate justice? Did God blot them out right then and there? It took many generations. And so in God's providence and God's timetable, Now is God's time to have the Amalekites blotted out. And he gives the instructions to Saul to do what he had promised to Moses back in Exodus. Now we may not understand why God would order the complete and utter destruction of a people, but we have it in the Bible here where God says, I'm going to do this. He promised it to Moses, and then he's telling Saul right here in 1 Samuel 15 to do it. And so what we have here, this is some 300 years later after Moses. So in essence, if you think about it, God has been patient and kind and long-suffering, giving this pagan sinful nation a chance to repent. Have you thought about it that way? Right then and there, God could have destroyed and blotted out Amalekites back in Exodus. But he waits 300 years. What should have the Amalekites been doing over those 300 years, generation after generation? Now, I know they're pagans, but ultimately, what should have been their response? The Lord God of Israel has not destroyed us. We better repent. We better believe in this God of Israel. He's been kind to us. But they've not. The Amalekites have persisted in sin, and God has every right to punish sin because He's holy and just. Okay, so let's just just lay our cards on the table and ask a question. Does God have the right to punish sin? Absolutely. Here's another question to ask. If you struggle with God punishing sin, do you want a God who never punishes sin or never executes justice? Do you want a God who's willy-nilly and lets bygones be bygones and never rights any wrongs? Would you want to worship that kind of God? Because what if you're on the receiving end of the injustice? It would kind of be like this. Let's say that You're a dad like me, and a burglar comes in and murders your wife and your children. Takes everything away from you. 
And there's, you have home video footage, there's a smoking gun, there's enough evidence to put this guy away for years. You're in the courtroom, and the defense lawyer's making his case, and, and, and it's, a, it's a closed case. There's no dispute that this guy murdered your family. And it comes time for sentencing, okay? So the jury finds him guilty. We, the jury, find so-and-so guilty. And the judge stands up and goes, okay, it's time for sentencing. And the judge says, okay, here's your sentence. I'm going to give you a slap on the wrist, a $25 fine, and never do it again. How would you feel about that judge? You'd be like, I'm voting this guy off the next time there's an election. If you're the dad whose family got murdered and there was no justice, you would not want a human judge to act that way. Why would we want, not want God, the ultimate judge of the universe, to act justly when there's injustice? So the Amalekites are a picture of what sinners in rebellion against God deserve. They deserve justice. Does anybody here deserve mercy? What do we all deserve? Justice. Now what's the beauty of the gospel? Instead of giving us justice, what does God give us? He gives us mercy in Jesus dying for us on the cross. So the Amalekites are utterly to be blotted out, destroyed, no longer on the planet. It's also a picture, an Old Testament picture, of eternal judgment to those who perish in rebellion against God and die in their sins. So, this passage should shock you in a sense that God would tell Saul, utterly destroy every single one of the Amalekites. Are they innocent? No. They are rebellious. They're unrepentant. God's given them 300 years to repent. They have not. We may not like it, but if you're going to be honest with the Scriptures, you've got to say, this is what the Bible says. And you've got to live with that tension. Okay, does Saul obey God? What does verse 1 say? The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now therefore, listen. Listen to the words of the Lord. Okay, what about verses 4 through 9? So Samuel summoned the people and numbered them and tell them, 200,000, and they go to war, and Saul destroys them. Does he kill the king? No, he leaves the king alive. Now that's amazing. You'd think at least you'd kill the king. He leaves the king alive, and then what does he do? All the good livestock... All the fatted lambs and fatted calves and even maybe some of the jewelry. All of the good stuff Saul kept. Okay? What was he supposed to do? Whether we like it or not, he was supposed to destroy everything. He does not listen to the voice of the Lord. He disobeys the voice of the Lord. So theological nasty, number one, if we're going to call it that, is... 
How can God ordain the utter destruction of the Amalekites? And the answer is, God is just. They are not innocent. And God has given them three years, 300 years to repent, and they have not. They've been storing up wrath for themselves, and now it's time for judgment. Were they totally destroyed? No. Saul did not destroy them. So here's question number two. Another interesting theological question. Does God have regrets or somehow did he make a mistake or caught off guard in what Saul did? Now, you've got a word there in verse 11 we've got to deal with. What does verse 11 say? I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned his back from me and has not performed my commands. I regret. And then how does the passage end? Verse 35, the Lord regretted that he made Saul over Israel. Now, let's, let's deal with this. Does God literally have regrets? I'm sorry I did that. I didn't mean to do that. I, I didn't, Saul caught me off guard. I'm not sure I knew what he was going to do. Does it mean that God was fickle? And he was somehow experimenting with Saul. He really doesn't know what's going to happen. Now, the, if you have the King James Version of the Bible, this, this makes it even more difficult. Because the King James Version says the Lord repented. The Lord repented of making Saul. Can the Lord repent? So, here's the question when you have this wording. Can this mean that God was sinful? If God repented, that means he did something wrong. Can this mean that God was sinful or somehow wrong in his choice of Saul or made a mistake and had to repent of what he did? Can it mean that God is not sovereign and didn't know the future? Can it mean that God was caught off guard? Okay, and what would be the theological answer to that? Absolutely not. There are too many scriptures that teach the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, and he's never caught off guard. So we've got to ask the question, what does this word mean that God regretted? That God regretted. What does that Hebrew word mean? Well, the only other place in the Old Testament where that word is used, surprisingly, is with the flood. And God's attitude towards the world. Back in Genesis chapter 6, 7 through 8, you have almost the exact same language. Genesis 6, 7 through 8. The Lord said, I will blot man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I'm sorry that I made them. Some translations say, I regretted that I made them. It's the same Hebrew word for what we have here in 1 Samuel 15. The word conveys the idea that God was emotionally grieved over sin and disobedience. Okay, now let's just talk for a moment here. Let's try to wrap our minds around something. Can we fully understand the emotional makeup of an infinite God? No. So when there are words that the Scripture writers use to describe God, 
sometimes they, they have to make it make sense to us as humans and put it in human terms so that we can understand it. Can the living God grieve or be saddened? Doesn't it say don't grieve the Holy Spirit? However you take it, I don't think that this passage of Scripture is saying God didn't know what Saul was going to do and God made a mistake by putting Saul in, in that place. I didn't know Saul was going to do that. He caught me off guard. I told him not to destroy the animals. I, told, I mean, I told him to destroy all the Amalekites and he didn't. And that really surprised me, God's saying. And so, man, I wish I would have known better and predicted Saul's behavior because he really caught me off guard. Can that be what, what it's saying there? No. Now, I find it very interesting. Okay, let's ask the question. When God destroyed the earth, who did he start over with? One family, right? Noah. I find it interesting, and no coincidence, that Samuel links back to Genesis with Noah. God rejected the world and destroyed them in a flood, but chose one man to shower with grace to build an ark, Noah. In the same way, God rejected Saul, took away his kingdom, but chose one man to shower with grace and to build a kingdom. David. God is starting over with Noah. God is starting over with David. Does that mean that God made a mistake the first time in creating the world? Does that mean God made a mistake the first time when he had Saul as king? No, that's not what it means. So this doesn't mean that God is clueless or God is caught off guard or God doesn't know the future. Basically, um, We've got the answer in this passage of Scripture, okay? So look at verse 29. Verse 29 answers the theological conundrum. What does verse 29 say? And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Do we have a contradiction here? In this passage of Scripture. No, we don't. Verse 29 explains that God is not a man who's fickle or sinful or frustrated or lacks foresight. God is not a man. He's the living God. Notice what he's called there. The glory of Israel. He doesn't need to repent. He's not surprised or caught off guard because he's sovereign over all things. God is unchanging. God is omniscient. God knows all things past, present, and future. He's never caught off guard. He's perfect. He's eternal. He is the unchanging God. There's no fluctuation in God. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this, <clears throat> the rock. For his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. When you think about a rock, you guys ever been to uh, Garden of the Gods where there's balancing rock? You take the picture underneath it and it looks like you're holding up the rock. Okay. 
When you think about a rock, can you move a rock? Like you can move a little rock, but when you think about a boulder, when's the last time you can move a boulder? Unless you're like the rock. Dwayne Johnson, I, don't, I guess. No, a, a rock is a metaphor of being stable, being unmovable, being faithful. And so God does not fluctuate. God's not caught off guard. God doesn't learn things on the fly. God does not somehow get surprised by things. He is solid. He's unchanging. Psalm 33, uh, 10-12. through 12, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as an inheritance. God's the one who frustrates the counsel of the people. God's the one whose counsel stands forever. God knows the future. God ordains all things. So here's one thing you need to know. You may, you may not agree with it, but it's what the Bible teaches. God ordains all things that come to pass and is not surprised by anything that comes to pass. Anything that comes to pass is because God not only knows it, but God decreed it. So did God decree for Saul to do what he did? Yes. Was Saul responsible for doing what he did? Yes. Did Saul's actions catch God off guard? No. Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you would ever form the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 102, 25-27. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. In other words, God never changes. Now, look at verse 29. What does it say there? The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Let me show you a parallel passage in Numbers 23, 19. See if this sounds familiar to you. <clears throat> God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said it and will he not do it, or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So this is a clear statement in both these passages of what God is not. God is not a man. What do men and women do? Do we know the future? Do we change our minds? Are we caught off guard? Can we fib and lie? Yes. Can God lie? Can God change his mind? Can God have regrets? Okay. So we have very clear passages of Scripture here that teach very clearly that God is not a man. God does not lie. God does not have regrets. God is not caught off guard. God is sovereign. That God is unchanging. God does not change. Job 23.13 But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he does, that he does. Or what he desires, that he does. Malachi 3.6 For the Lord, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17 Every good 
gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So, let's just ask the second theological question. When God says, I regret that I made Saul king, was God taken off guard by what Saul did? No. It's basically God's emotional response to Saul's disobedience. God did nothing wrong. God did not sin, so he had to repent. God is expressing and put in human terms here emotional grief, if you will, over the disobedience of Saul. Does that make sense? Okay. So two theological nasties. One, how can God ordain the utter destruction of the Amalekites? And number two, can, does God really regret and caught off guard? Okay, so before we go into the more practical, let's stop. Do you have any questions related to these two um, theological conundrums? Was it not clear? Do I need to, do I need to stop and re- recapitulate, or, is, or are you still trying to think it through? All right. So, these first two theological questions are about the very nature of God. Does God have the sovereign right to punish sin? Absolutely. Does God have immense sorrow over sin? Absolutely. Now, think about the practicality of this for a moment in your life. Let's just ask a question. If God was sorrowful over Saul's sin, is God sorrowful over your sin? Ephesians 4.30 Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Can the Holy Spirit be grieved? Have you ever thought about that? You know, when you've sinned and you're confessing your sin to God, it's very easy to go, Father, I've sinned against you. Lord, Heavenly Father, please forgive me. I know I've broken your law. And then you can go to Jesus. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. I know you died on the cross for my sin. And we kind of go to the Father and ask for forgiveness. We go to Jesus. But when was the last time you said, Holy Spirit, my sin grieved you? I'm sorry that I grieved you, Holy Spirit. It's kind of a Trinitarian way to confess our sins. Very easy to understand asking forgiveness from the Father, asking forgiveness from Jesus. You're not necessarily asking forgiveness from the Spirit, but you're acknowledging that your sin grieved the Holy Spirit. Let's not forget this. We do not worship Allah, who's an impersonal God. We do not worship the great computer in the sky. Our God is personal. He's a personal God. Now, he's the highest and most complex being in all the universe who's outside of time and eternal, and we can't even begin to know that. But we need to understand that two things here. Let's make it practical. God has the right to punish your sin, and God has the right to be sorrowful over your sin. Let's ask the question, how did God punish your sin? In Christ. 
Praise the Lord. What could have God said to you before you were even born? He could have said to you, you will be utterly blotted out of all memory and be a recipient of my wrath. Would we deserve that? Yes. So God, being merciful, said, no, I'm going to take the punishment and I'm going to meet that punishment out on Jesus in your place, in the place of, my, of sinners. We all deserve wrath. We all deserve judgment. We're all like the Amalekites. We deserve to be utterly blotted out. And praise the Lord that God brought that justice down upon Jesus. So how are you saved? You confess your sin. You acknowledge your sin. You own up to your sin that grieves God, that God has every right to punish, and you trust in Jesus who took that sin for you. All right. Those are the two big theological questions in this passage of Scripture. I said two questions were theological and two, two questions were more practical. So let's ask the third question. <clears throat> what exactly was Saul's sin? Now, before you answer that question, there's a key word that shows up around eight times in one form or another. It's the Hebrew word Shema. Shema means to hear. But it doesn't mean to just take information into your ears. The Hebrew word Shema means to listen with the intention and passionate determination to obey wholeheartedly what you hear. When God says listen, it's not just like, okay, God, I heard you. It's, no, hear what I'm saying and do what I tell you. How many times have you, as a parent you told your kid, go take out the trash? Are you listening? Well, I heard you, Dad. No, I want you to do it now. <laughs> I'm not asking if you heard me. Did you hear me? Yes. Well, yeah, I know you heard me, but take it a step further and go do what I'm asking you to do. That's what the word Shema means. Now, look at verse 1. We talked about this. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Therefore, listen... There's the word Shema, listen to the words I'm going to tell you. In other words, Saul, don't just casually take in information, but listen wholeheartedly to what God is telling you with the de determination that you're going to obey it. You're not just going to give lip service that you heard God, you're actually going to obey it. Okay, now, go down to verse 19. Well, let's go back to verse, let's go... Um, Back to verse 18. <clears throat> Samuel's confronting Saul. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Okay, then Saul asked the question in verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord your God? Do you know that the word obey there in verse 19 is the word Shema? Just the way the ESV translates it. Why did you not listen slash obey? Now what's Saul's answer? We're talking about blinding pride here. What's Saul's answer? In verse 20, Saul said, 
to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. What's he saying? Samuel, why are you getting on me? I did obey God. Why are you calling me out? I did. And what does Samuel say to him? He got that poetic section there in verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. Saul, I don't care what type of religious activity you did to make it look like you're listening to me. What I want is your heart, a heart of obedience. And so here's the tragic thing. Here's the ultimate sin. What was Saul's sin? It was his failure to obey, which ended up in rejecting God. Look at verse 11. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. He's turned back. Now, that's the Hebrew word shuv, which means to repent. But is this repentance in a good way? It's like neg- it's, it's the wrong type of repentance. It's kind of a play on word here. It's a play on words. It's used negatively. Instead of repenting and turning toward God in faith and obedience, it was turning the opposite direction. Yeah, Saul turned. Repentance is a turning toward God. It's a turning away from sin and a turning toward God. That's what repentance is. But well, which direction did Saul turn? He turned the wrong way. Instead of turning back to God, he turned away from God. And so this turning was really a rejection or a rebellion. And so it started out with, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to obey. And that eventually turned to, I'm going to turn from the Lord. I'm going to reject the Lord. And then you see the culmination of it in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has also rejected you from being king. That was Saul's tragic downfall. He thought he was being religious. He thought he was obeying God. But he had rejected. Because you've rejected. Again, the two words there. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Because you've turned your back on the Lord, the Lord's turned his back on you from being king. Now, that was the big sin of Saul. The big sin was, what was his big sin? It was rejecting the Lord, which 
stemmed from not listening to the Lord. But, but these sins aren't in a vacuum. This huge sin of rejecting God was, was made up of a bunch of little sins that got him there. And I, and I, and I don't mean little, like, his, like underlying sins. So these other sins led up to the big sin. So what were these underlying sins that blinded Saul to the wickedness and rebelliousness in his heart? Okay, so the big sin is that he rejected the Lord. Okay, what were the things that Saul did that led up to that? What does the text tell us? So we see three things unfold before our very eyes in the story. If you read the, if you read the narrative carefully, you will see these things show up, these sins. Okay, number one. His pride in making a monument to himself prevented him from obedience. Now, before we get there, Saul's pretty happy with himself, isn't he? He thought he was doing the right thing. Samuel comes up and says, why, why haven't you devoted everybody to destruction? Hey, I got the king and I got this, got this livestock here. I'm going to go sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, he's probably thinking to himself, man, I won the war. We beat the Amalekites. Things are good. Samuel should be happy with me and God should be happy with me because after all, we won. But how does he respond to winning? Look at verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Did you catch that? <laughs> hey, I won the war. I'm the king. I'm going to build a statue to myself. I'm going to set up a monument to myself. Hey, let me build a statue to myself. I mean, this is Saul's attitude from the very beginning of his life. Self-serving, petty, jealous, wanting to get all the attention. Now, most of you would not admit you're building a monument to yourself. But could you be guilty of wanting others to be drawn to what you've accomplished? Are you the type of person who always has to post on Facebook and either one-up somebody else or that you get upset if you don't have enough likes? Or smiley, what were they, what are the little emojis that have like the smiley faces now? And I mean, you, you go check your social media, um, Instagram. You're the kind of person that has to have all the attention. You would never say, <coughs> excuse me, you would never say, I'm, I'm setting up a monument to myself. Like, I'm going to go in the backyard and I'm going to build a statue to myself and everybody's going to come by and worship it. You wouldn't do that. But can you play the game on social media? Can you play the game in your family? I want everything to revolve around me. Come look at me. Look at my accomplishments. Look at what I did. And you get uncomfortable or you get fearful or you get insecure when it's not all about you. So you, you create this monument to yourself. That's what Saul did. He, he just said, I'm the king. I won the victory. I'm going to go build a monument to myself. And that's what you can do when you're the king, I guess. All right, number two, and we've kind of already addressed this. This is the other little sin that led to the big sin. Under the guise of looking quote-unquote religious, 
he was blinded in his selective obedience. What was he supposed to do? Whether we like it or not, or understand it or not, what was he supposed to do? Devote all the Amalekites to destruction. That was what he was supposed to do. Wipe out the entire Amalekites. Everything. Leave nothing behind. Not even leave livestock. Leave no trace. Utterly obliterate them all. And yet, who knows better than God? Saul thinks he knows better than God. I'll keep the king as a hostage. God will be happy with that. I'll keep the king as a hostage. And I'll keep all the good livestock because after all, you know, I can maybe use that livestock to go do some sacrifices. We don't want to get rid of good livestock, do we? And maybe we can parade the king around and make it look like we, you know, we, we've got the king, we've got him as a hostage. In other words, what was Saul trying to look? He was trying to look religious. And Samuel catches him. <laughs> what does he say in verse 14? <laughs> <What's> th- <laughs> he walks up to him and S- Saul's like, hey, ble- blessed Samuel, I'm glad you're here. I'm excited. I made a monument to myself. Everything's great. We won the war. And, and Samuel's like, um, I'm hearing like, bah. I'm hearing the bleeding of sheep and I'm hearing the lowing of cattle. What's this livestock stuff I'm hearing here? Saul's kind of nonchalant. He's not thinking he got caught. He's thinking to himself, Samuel, think about it. Now we can really give good sacrifices to the Lord. Look at all the livestock that we have here. He was keeping things back and being selective in his obedience. Now, Now here's a hard thing. God's not going to ever tell you to go utterly destroy a people. Okay, that's not something. This is an Old Testament. But if God calls you or God clearly teaches you to be obedient, does God want partial obedience? Let me say it this way. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Because you're picking and choosing how you'll obey. And when you pick and choose how you'll obey and you're not listening to the full voice of the Lord and you're the arbiter of what you're going to do, you're still being disobedient because you're not obeying all that God has told you to do. So Saul doesn't think he's done anything wrong. What does he say in verse 20? I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission that the Lord sent me. I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek. What are you talking about, Samuel? I've done what what God told me to do. I'm doing it for God, after all. I'm doing all this. And basically, Samuel looks him right in the eye and says, Saul, God doesn't care about this religious show. God doesn't care about your half-hearted obedience. You can look like you're religious. You can make it look like you're all that and you kept the king back and you kept... Whatever it is you're trying to do, Saul, God's not impressed. Because you're trying to make yourself all that. And what God wants is your heart and obedience. To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, Saul, you can look religious... You can fake it. 
You can outwardly act like a Christian to try to impress God or others, but God sees right through it. He doesn't want your religiosity. He wants wholehearted obedience. And Samuel calls out Saul's sin. Notice what he says there. To obey is better than sacrifice. This is in verse 22. But then look at what he calls Saul's rebellion. Verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. The sin of divination. That's that's witchcraft. And idolatry. God is saying, or Samuel saying to Saul, what you've done is equivalent to witchcraft and idolatry. How do you think Samuel would have responded to that? Well, not me. Witchcraft? That's a little strong, Samuel. I mean, all I did was kept back a few few animals and I kept the king hostage. I mean, you can't be serious that God wanted me to destroy all of them. Witchcraft? Idolatry? Okay. So Saul made a monument to himself. That's number one. He was prideful. Number two, he was trying to look religious. He's blinded. And Samuel looks right through it and says, God doesn't care about your show. He wants your heart. But here's another big thing. This, this is what plagued Saul all the way through his ministry. Or all the way through his, his kingship. Number three... excuse me, he feared the approval of men instead of fearing the living God. He was a man pleaser. He feared man instead of feared God. Um, I want to show you something that I hope you caught that's repeated throughout this narrative. Look at, and I I emphasized it when I read it the first time, but let's go back and look at it. Look at verse 15. Remember when Saul says, let's go back to verse 14. Samuel said, what then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Notice what he's saying. They did it. The people did it. They just kind of did it, Samuel. It really wasn't me. I'm just kind of doing what they wanted. It sounded kind of extreme to kill all of the livestock, so I just kind of listened to what the people wanted. They're the ones that that were in charge here, and I was just doing what they wanted. Look at verse 21. The people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best things devoted to destruction. Sacrifice the Lord your God in Gilgal. It's the people. I'm just following the people. Saul was more concerned about how he looked in front of the people than obeying the Lord because he feared men. He lived under peer pressure. He blamed the people. This reminds me a lot about the Pharisees. What did Jesus say about the Pharisees in John 12, 42-43? Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's Saul right there. He loved the glory that came from man 
more than obedience to the Lord. In other words, here's, here's Saul's mantra. Well, everybody else is doing it. It was the people. The people made me do it. The, the people, it was the people. It wasn't me. I was just following what the people wanted. Now, those of you that, had, that have had teenagers or have teenagers now or, or, or have, you know, your teenager out of your house, how many times did you have your child say, but mom and dad, everybody else is doing it? You know, I was so frustrated as a kid. You know, my, my, parent, my dad was a, pa- was, a, was a pastor, and um, this was in the, growing up in the 80s, but we were not allowed to see rated R movies um, until I was 18. And so, like, I remember when other kids in the youth group would go see rated R movies after Sunday night church or Wednesday night church, go to the theater. And, like, I'd tell my, my parents, Dad, everybody's doing it. The deacon's kids are doing it. Everybody's doing it. And then my mom, I always remember my mom said, well, if everybody jumped off a cliff, would you go do it too? Did your mom ever, like, everybody's doing it. But then Saul gives it away. He, here's the punchline. Here's Saul's confession. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandments of the Lord in your words, because, what, what was it all? I feared the people and obeyed their voice. What was the problem? What's the word that shows up eight times? Shema. That's the word there. Again, Shema. Listen. Instead of listening and wholeheartedly obeying God, he listened to and wholeheartedly obeyed the voice of the people because he was a people pleaser. So Saul was a profile in being a people pleaser, fear of man, going with the crowd, giving into peer pressure, being so insecure that he has to set up a monument to himself, being so blind in his pride that he doesn't know that he's not doing what God wants him to do, partial obedience, all of these little building blocks of sins led up to the big sin, which is what? He did not listen to the voice of the Lord. He rejected the Lord. So these three sins, making a monument to himself, his selective obedience in trying to look religious, and his fear of man were the underlying building blocks that led up to the big sin of rejecting God by not fully obeying Him. Okay. I said we're going to ask four questions tonight. First question was the big theological question about wiping out the Amalekites. Second question, the big theological question, does God have regrets? Third question, well, what was, what was Saul's sin? Well, it was a big sin made up of a bunch of different little sins. But here's the fourth sin, or the fourth question. Did... Saul demonstrate authentic repentance. Did he repent? Now here's the ultimate issue. Through the prophet Samuel, Saul has been confronted with his sin. And what's the outcome? He's been rejected by God. 
And he's really being abandoned by Samuel. Do we see any true, authentic repentance from Saul, or is Saul just upset that he didn't get his way, or that he got caught, or that it would cost him his reputation in the eyes of the people? Okay, how, how, do, they, how do they part ways? There's, there's a poetic, kind of symbolic thing that happens here. Look at verse 26. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. Now, is that just an incidental little, okay, you picture what's going on here. Please don't go. Please don't leave me. I'm so sorry I sinned. And as Samuel's walking away, Saul pulls at his robe and it tears. He rips his robe. Now, is that just an incidental detail that the author gives us here? What's the symbolism of the, the robe ripping? Well, you have the answer in the right next verse. Verse 28. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. So here's the symbolism. Samuel is leaving him in judgment. And Saul grabs his robe and tears it. And this is a symbolic picture of what has happened to him as king. His kingdom, his authority has been ripped from him by God. Just like he has ripped Samuel's robe. <coughs> Excuse me. Once that robe is ripped, and once Samuel has pronounced that judgment, is there any going, is there any going back? God's made the pronouncement. Saul, you're not going to be king. You've been rejected. Their kingdom's been torn from you. Now, at this point, Saul doesn't know who his neighbor is that's going to be given to. We'll find that out in the next, ver the next chapter, next week, King David. So, in verse 30, look at verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. What's he asking there? I've sinned, but make me look good in front of the people. Don't, don't tell people what happened here. I want to save face. So in verse 30, make sure it gets up there. In verse 30, we see Saul's true heart, and it's not a heart of repentance. Now, he confesses sin, and he admits he did wrong. But let me ask you a question. If you've read carefully in this entire thing, has Saul ever confessed directly to the Lord? Now, he's been grieved. He's been rejected. He shows sorrow, doesn't he? But let's ask, what kind of sorrow is it? Is it godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. What is Saul most concerned about? I want to save face in front of the people. I don't want this to get out. Let's just, let's just 
quietly keep this a secret from the people, Samuel. The people don't need to know that I've been rejected as king. This can just be between you and me. 2 Corinthians 7.10 Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regrets, whereas worldly grief produces death. Do we see any genuine confession, repentance, contrition where Saul feels like he's sinned against the Lord and gone to the Lord and asked forgiveness from the Lord? Or is he more concerned with the, having to deal with the consequences and looking bad in front of the people? Here's what I think you see here in Saul. He's more concerned about protecting his reputation than he is about being broken before God. In fact, in this entire story, story we, do we ever see Saul praying directly to God? There is a difference between being sorry you got caught and repenting. There's a difference between being sorry you have to deal with the consequences and truly repenting. You can get caught in sin and somebody call you out like Samuel calls out Saul, and you can feel the sting of that and say, oh my gosh, I sinned. How's this going to make me look in front of others? What am I going to have to deal with the consequences? I don't like this. And you can be thinking, what, what, what are you thinking there? Me, me, me. And never be brokenhearted and go, man, I've sinned against God. So to repent means to change your mind. That's what the word repent means. Your mind's been changed you own up to your sin, you confess it directly to God, and by His grace, you actually change. You're not concerned about your reputation. You're not concerned about how you look in front of others. You're not concerned about the fallout or the consequences. All those things that are more selfishly motivated, the one thing you're focused on is, how am I going to please my Father? And so this is the rejection of Saul. After he rips Samuel's robe and Samuel turns to him and says, the kingdom's been ripped from you, they part ways and they never see each other ever again. Samuel, the man of God, has been taken out of Saul's life. Samuel now has to go and his ministry now is to David. So God has rejected Saul, and God has taken Samuel out of Saul's life. And notice how the chapter ends. Again, it doesn't mean that God made a mistake, but it's kind of a poetic, dramatic way of ending the chapter. The Lord regretted, Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. There's sadness, there's grief, there's anguish at the end of this. Humanly speaking from Samuel, because he saw the king reject God and God reject him. So, this is the setup for chapter 16. David. Everything in this chapter about Saul shows a man who does not have a heart for God. Where's his heart? He has a heart for himself. 
and he lives in fear of man. And as we will see next week, in opposition to Saul, God chooses a man after his own heart, David, who will embody what it means to obey God as the rightful king of Israel. So here's the final question. I said we're going to ask four questions, but here's the ultimate final question. It's the personal question. Are you blinded by pride and giving God only partial obedience? Are you living in fear of man? Are you being quote-unquote religious but not giving God your heart? And if so, the only answer is to go directly to the king. Don't be like Saul. Where did Saul go for forgiveness? Did you catch it? Look at verse 25. Paul, uh, Saul says in verse 25 to Samuel, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. What does he say? What does Saul say to Samuel? Pardon my sin, Samuel. You deal with my sin, Samuel. He, ne- he doesn't go directly to, to, the, to the Lord and ask for forgiveness of sins. We have a king, Jesus, who died on the cross and rose again and has the power to forgive and cleanse and make you new. And so the only way that you can overcome this blinding pride, this fear of man, this looking religious, is to go directly ourselves to the king. Not King Saul, not King David, not Samuel, but to King Jesus. And go directly to him for forgiveness and confess that, and he's the only one that can cleanse our hearts and give us that, that renewed sense of, of, of a desire to please him. So, I've got 15 minutes left. I think I milked that chapter for all I could get out of it. So, um, do we have any questions here in the last 15 minutes? Yeah, uh, well, yes. I'm sorry. Online questions. Okay, this is always fun. Okay. Okay, repeat. There's like three questions there. Just ask the, la- ask the last question. Okay, so the last question is, um, how do you know with certainty that it is God's voice slash will? How do you make sure you are following the way and not bending into your own will? How do you know that it's God's voice slash God's will? Okay, so I'll make this very easy. How do you know you've heard God's voice? How do you know you've heard God's audible voice? Read your Bible out loud. Okay. All I'm going to say is that you know you're obeying. Sometimes we wait for this mystical like inner voice to kind of guide us and tell us, and we're waiting for God to speak to us. Sometimes people in the Old Testament, God spoke directly to them. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, In these last days God has spoken through his Son, 
Jesus and given us a completed Bible. So everything that we need to know is in the Bible. And so if you obey what the Bible clearly says, you know that you're obeying God's will and not your own voice. And so it has to line up with what the Scripture says, uh, not an impression that you get or not some type of... Um, liver shiver I don't know what else you call it where you know it's got to be it's got to be directly from the word and if you do get an impression you got to line that up with what the word says because if it's the Holy Spirit it's not going to be in direct conflict with what God's word says Glenn I think you had a question right mm-hmm Right. 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 Yeah, it was about the people, and that's a good point. We didn't go back to how, if you remember, how was Saul chosen? Um, he was tall and good looking. The Israelites said, we want a king like the other nations around us. And God says, okay, I'll give you what you asked for. It's going to go bad for you, but I'm going to give you what you asked for. So they look at outward appearance. We want someone who's tall and good looking. And the first time you find out Saul, what's he doing? He's bungling, he's bungling around the sheep pen trying to figure out how to... He's not a very good shepherd. He can't, he can't keep the sheep in the pen and he's running around trying to... So the very first foreshadowing of Saul is he's tall, he's good looking, and he's not a good shepherd. But the people want him because the people choose. David is the one that God chooses. And we'll find out next week that God does not look at outward appearance, but looks at the heart. The people were looking at outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Yeah, good, good point, Glenn. Tarina? Oh, yes. Uh, Andrew. That's a good question. Yeah, did you guys hear... Good question. Why did God not give Saul a second chance when he gave David a second chance after Bathsheba and Uriah? Okay. The, the, okay. What, were you going to answer that? Or were you gonna, well, <laughs> I was kind of thinking along the same line. Uh, Saul never talked directly to God like David. David okay. Yeah, so here's the point, and it goes back to the first point. God can do what God can do. We can ask, why did God not give Saul a second chance? And my answer would be, because God didn't give Saul a second chance. I mean, that's my biblical answer. Um, the point is, God in his sovereignty chose David. And because he chose David, even when David sinned, it was through David's lineage that the Messiah would come, not through Saul. So God allowed the people to choose their king, knowing full well what Saul was going to do. Remember, God wasn't caught off guard. He knew all along what was going to happen. And so when Saul rejected, that was God's prerogative to say, we're done, and I'm going to choose David. And even though David sinned with Bathsheba, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks down the road, when David sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, he was, not, he was forgiven, but he had to deal with the major consequences of his family being at warfare with one another and just his family ripped apart. So he dealt with the consequences of that sin in real time. I don't know if that answers your question.
Andrew or maybe? Mostly, Mostly? okay. What's the mostly part? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, if we, could, if we could put Dave, I mean, we may come back to this. If we could take Saul's sin and his response to God and David's sin and his response to God side by side, David wrote two psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, expressing his heartfelt grief over sinning against God. Against you and only you have I sinned. David had that heart of repentance. David had that heart of knowing that he sinned against God. Do you see Saul having that heart at all? Self-preservation, I'm sorry I got caught, don't tell the people, doesn't talk directly to God. And so there's, there's a huge contrast between Saul's repentance and David's repentance. That, that, that kind of, yeah. Good questions. Anything else? Tarina, what was that other question about the temple veil tearing and... Um, yeah, the temple veil being torn in two, and Saul, and the, I don't think they have any relation to whatsoever. Um, I mean, I think in this passage of Scripture, it explains what happens. I mean, you have the event and then the explanation right after it. it the event was, he pulls at the robe, it tears, and then Saul, Samuel turns around and says, your kingdom's being ripped from you. So it's, it's right there in the text. It's, it's a ripping apart of... Saul's kingdom because of rejecting God. Um, I, I, I mean, it's a ripping apart and the temple veil ripped in two, but those are two different, I think, totally, totally different um, events that don't have any relationship. The only, the only similarity is a cloth ripped. <laughs> Beyond that, there's not a lot of similarities. Anything else? All right, you guys have it all down? Ready to take the test? You, you can't leave unless you get it 100%. No, I don't even have a test here to give you. So some of you are like, he's really going to do that? No way. All right, well, let's pray, and then hopefully you'll come back next week, and we'll actually start the life of David. But I wanted to start the life of, I wanted to end the ministry or the kingship of Saul to set up the life of David so you kind of knew the, the, the contrast here. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll be gone. Father, thank you for this time tonight. And Lord, we do see from this passage of Scripture how blinding pride can be, how we can try to look religious, how we can be in fear of man, how we can be a people pleaser, and how we can try to preserve ourselves and, and so Lord we see in Saul a man that was like driven by self-preservation so Lord help us to have soft hearts like David as we'll see a man after your own heart that was repentant that was quick to confess sin against you that understood the gravity of his, of his sin um, Lord let this be a, a warning to us to to listen to your voice and to obey and to not give partial obedience. Um, and so, Lord, help us, give us grace. Thank you that, Jesus, you died for our sins and rose again, that we might have that forgiveness, that we might have that cleansing. Um, and thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can be empowered to live the Christian life for your glory. And so, um, Lord, help us as we go up from this place to, to glorify your name and bring us back all together uh, Sunday morning, ready to worship you together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.